Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. The Ontario government's new sex ed curriculum was released yesterday, of course. We're going to get reaction from the Hamilton Board of Education. Hate groups infiltrating the Canadian Armed Forces. An investigation into one domestic terrorist group alleges that a master corporal is a member. What's being done about it? And Canada's relationship with China has been twisted in the knots. How's that going to affect the upcoming federal election? And the G7 meeting. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday morning, the uh, Ontario government uh, rolled out their new sex ed curriculum. It's a part of the greater plan, of course, they said, uh, for uh, the, the uh, curriculum that's going to be happening oh, just a couple of weeks, I guess, when everybody gets back to school. And uh, at first glance, it looked to be an awful lot like the one that they scrapped that was uh, introduced by the uh, the Wynn government. There are a couple of things that are different on this. But now we've had a, 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 some time to, to digest this, and so have the boards of education. Uh, there were some concerns raised by boards of education, teachers, federations, and others. Uh, you may remember there's actually a, uh, a, a court challenge to uh, to the uh, move by the Ford government to scrap the existing plan. Now, that was tossed out, but, I mean, it's out there, and it still showed, uh, I think, some of the, the concerns that have been raised. I want to bring Alex Johnstone into the conversation. Alex, of course, is the chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Alex, uh, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. You've uh, had a chance to look at this and uh, and and uh, digest this, and uh, I, I guess the first question here, Alex, is uh, what what's are you pleased with this? Are, are there some shortcomings here that you need to address? What's your read on it? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that uh, we've had a chance to read this and digest this because this was surprising news for school boards yesterday morning, and uh, the ministry had invited in members of the media to review the document before school boards did. So it was a bit of a shock. Uh, we did know that the work was taking place over the year. Um, however, for the announcement to come out in the past, School boards have been informed about changes coming to curriculum in advance and have had the opportunity to review. Uh, when documents like this come to us, it does take a while for us to go through all of the pages to fully understand what the changes are. So our staff are currently in the process of reviewing this document to better understand what, what some of these changes might be. Well, it's uh, not surprising that uh, they rolled it out in the fashion in which they did, Alex. I mean, it's, this this government has a propensity, actually, for trying to put on a show, and it's all about the, the presentation itself, and we've seen that with other press conferences that they've done. But I was under the impression, at least they seem to be saying this anyway, uh, that they wanted to be partners with the boards of education across the province. You would have thought that you sh- would have been brought to the table in that instance then. Well, I think you're, you're right. Things have changed. Some of the things that we're, we're hearing about with um, the health and physical education curriculum as we're beginning to go through them is that there will be the introduction of $2.25 million to help school boards um, make some of the changes. We're understanding that some aspects of the curriculum will be introduced at higher grades. Um, school boards have uh, expressed some concerns about the change of the introduction of um, of when curriculum will be introduced, mainly because we want to ensure that students are receiving the curriculum as they're experiencing um, experiencing changes in their own lives, so in real time. Um, that said, we did welcome um, the confirmation that our teachers do have the ability to, um, or I guess the recognition of their professional discretion in the classroom. So when they see issues arise, then they have the professional discretion to uh, to address those issues. 
Um, we did welcome uh, the introduction of um, the term transphobia into the curriculum. Um, we also understand that uh, the opt-out policy, which uh, has been in place since 2015, that it would be expanded from two weeks to three weeks. Um, so parents would be notified three weeks in advance as opposed to two weeks um, in advance, and um, they would have that ability to opt out. Uh, Alex, on that point, on the, the, yeah. there was no general policy across the province before that. It was kind of pretty much up to each individual board about the opting out and about informing the parents. Uh, so how does the, the, the overall policy, as you placed uh, now, that's, that's going to be here, how is that going to impact the Hamilton board? Does it change what you guys have been doing previously? There, there actually was a provincial direct directive back in 2015, and our board has had that in place since then. Okay. Um, so we've, we have always gone by a minimum of two weeks. That said, when um, the there's been many discussions over the last, um, I would say, decade around um, uh, our physical and uh, health education curriculum, uh, particularly around sexual education, and with that, we have had many meetings, particularly at the beginning of the school year, uh, where parents would be invited to come to the school to understand changes as they were rolling out, to have conversations with the principal as well as teaching staff, uh, as well as one-to-one conversations. Here in Hamilton, we've been um, particularly, I would say, progressive in that uh, we do have a hand guide, a parent hand guide on health and physical education uh, that um, is based on faith and creed-based accommodations and um, where we have worked with our faith advisory committee. We've also um, sent that document out for consultation and that is a tool that uh, we will look to update with some of the new changes as we begin to more fully understand them and uh, we'll continue to work with our parent community to ensure that they have the resources that they need for for all kinds of conversations. You have uh, been very good about being proactive about uh, you know public meetings and informing uh, the parents etc. Uh, do you foresee now that, that, that this is the new curriculum and it's only going to be a couple of weeks until you have to start implementing this, that there may be some public meetings where parents will be invited and you can kind of go over this. I understand you can't do it yet because you're still doing the analysis on this, but at some point, I'm sure a lot of parents are going to have a lot of questions. So we, we always um, we look to our, our principals and to our teaching staff to um, decide what's the best means of each of our school communities, um, where schools have uh, a need or you have the, an issue a reoccurring. That's when we would hold those types of public meetings. So we will we'll continue to assess um, and ensure that um, each of our schools are responding to the local need. Um, and I'm sure many parents will have questions around clarification. That's where those resources will become available. I think what's most important, too, for parents to, to know is that we would never ask our students to check their identity at the door. Regardless of um, the curriculum of the day, we do have responsibilities under um, Human Rights Code. We do, we do have a responsibility to our students themselves and to ensure that we are building a safe environment, a welcoming environment, an inclusive environment. And uh, we will always strive to ensure that our students' needs are being met in that way. Do you think, from what you've read so far, do you feel this new curriculum addresses that? 
I think that the new curriculum um, from, you know, very high level from what uh, what I've been going through and what um, trustees across the province have been looking into, it, it does restore many of the terms that uh, were introduced um, under, I would say, the last uh, government. Um, that said, um, these conversations should always be fluid. We should always be having um looking to ensure that we're providing more resources for parents and that we're always striving to make more inclusive environments. Uh, these discussions themselves are not, um, they're not bad. Um, it's, it's something that we should be having as a society. We should be looking at uh, building a more inclusive uh, place, and um, um, I welcome these opportunities. What about orientation for the teachers themselves? I mean, it's only a couple of weeks away from the beginning of school right now, and, and here, this is some brand new guys. Uh, start teaching this. Uh, do you have an opportunity to sit down with them and say, "Okay, let's go over this"? And, and I'm sure they'll have questions as well. Well, Bill, as you can, um, as you have uh, pointed out, and as, as have many others, it's a challenge when it's you know right before school, uh, school start up to to have changes, major changes coming out. Um, here in Hamilton, we will always take the focus of what our local needs are. So if we need more time, we will do that. Um, uh, we will be looking to support our staff to provide as much information as possible about what the changes are, as well as the parents and uh, guardian community. I think that um, it's difficult when announcements come out um, right before school start up, but um, we are a professional organization uh, with over 6,000 staff, and uh, I think that um, our educators, are eight, they undergo changes every single year when it comes to curriculum. The rollout here is going to be rather interesting. Now, we know, you've told this in the past, but it, I guess because it was the same with the old curriculum, the, the, the sexual part of this about you know, gender identity and things of this nature, that, that usually happens later on in the school year. But really, there are elements of this, I would think, Alex, that have to be introduced and, and begun day one, really, when it comes to things like gender identity and, and, and a number of other things like that, because people, for the first time, I guess, in a couple of months now, those students are, are back together again, and, and you know some of them are going to be new faces, and uh, there are going to be some questions that they might have to answer, and that's got to be addressed in the classroom. You know, Bill, you're right. It's so important that students be able to see themselves in the curriculum and in the classroom, and that's where we were quite pleased around the recognition of prof uh, professional discretion, that our teachers and educators will have the uh, recognizing their ability, as has always existed, um, but to have a, a formal recognition from the government that they do have professional discretion to identify the needs of their students and to respond to them accordingly. It's critical that we build inclusive environments uh, where students see themselves in the classroom. One of the other elements uh, that I think you guys have been doing before, but now it's it's carved in stone for the curriculum or for the the entire board and, the, and for the entire province for that matter, is the mental health aspect and and some of the stresses. I mean, because we've had discussions on this program and where I've had input from some uh, uh, listeners that have said, oh, come on, eight, seven, eight-year-old kids don't have mental health issues. Well, we know now that, yeah, they do. Uh, and that's obviously going to be part of the curriculum. And I, I think a very important addition to it. And mental health is um, itself, mental health does not mean neg something negative. Um, it is the management of mental health, the management of stress, um, and uh, pr the promotion of, um, um, of mental health is, is learning how to take care of yourself. And those discussions are welcome. Those discussions uh, 
uh, it's, um, I guess, a move towards, um, you know, a positive direction. That said, um, it's one thing to talk about items and it's another to fund it. And um, our in our school system, when I look at, at all of the things that we are currently doing, it's so important to ensure that funding is in place so that we can properly support our students. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, they weren't very clear yesterday about money. I know they did talk about transitional funding and things of that nature. Uh, it, it goes without saying, Alex, uh, that uh, you've got some financial challenges to begin with uh, starting in September now because of some of the other policies that this government has enacted. Uh, and that includes staffing to a certain extent as well. Are you, are you concerned that, the, that, that it's going to be that challenging for the board to supply those sorts of services and, and the support services that might be necessary here? Well, we have, um, um, I'm very, very proud of uh, the team that we have here at HWDSB, and there's a number of areas that we've been, I would say, leading in the province. Um, Dr. Short's come out of our board. There's so many uh, front runners that come out of HWDSB. That said, um, I think that it's positive to hear the government talking about the desire to focus on mental health. Um, we would then turn around and start to ask questions around, well, what is the funding associated with it? Um, but the fact that they're, they're flagging that this is an area that they're interested in, that's, that's good news. Uh, we'll just follow up with the questions around funding. Which are ongoing questions anyway. I mean, as I say, you've got challenges. I mean, this is the, you, you, your plate's pretty full here. Obviously, there, there are contracts with teachers. There's the, this new curriculum now, or the new twist to this curriculum anyway. Uh, it, it's got to be a little reassuring, though, that uh, by and large, from what we've seen of this anyway, and the analysis on, on the, the new curriculum so far, it's very similar to what the, the, the teachers that you've had in the last couple of years were teaching anyway. I think that um, uh, we had a year on hold where we went back to the former curriculum uh, from the 90s. And um, uh, as this government reviewed some of the changes that were brought in under the last government, uh, many of the changes were, um, I guess, uh, you know, after a year consultation, which is important. It's important to take time to consult with uh, with the community. And I do, um, I, I never see that as a waste of time. That's always valuable work, so long as you're listening to what uh, the parents and respondents have to say. And um, uh, so many of the recommendations that came out of that or the reintroduction of curriculum here is items that we saw previously. And um, if anything, that's a confirmation of, uh, of the direction previously. Was last year a lost year because of uh, the, 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 the backtracking that went on in the old curriculum? The, uh, there were so many things left out of that, so many things that I'm sure teachers wanted to have a discussion about that they weren't allowed to. As a matter of fact, I remember the one time there was actually a discussion about punitive action about any teacher that did do that. So it, it's, this is getting back on track to a certain extent, but it's got to be frustrating for teachers to say, you know, we went through that. Now, you know, how are the students going to respond to this? Last year was very challenging. Our board held an emergency meeting last summer, and the Board of Trustees unanimously endorsed um, a message uh, and confirmation going out to all HWDSB staff so all staff, that um, uh, we expected um, all of our staff to build an inclusive classroom and to recognize the identities of the students coming into our classrooms. Um, and, uh, and that falls under um, you know, human rights code. I mean, that is, um, that is supreme 
uh, supreme law of the land. And I think that um, with regards to the year that took place again, I am going to highlight um, having um, uh, having a year to um, to reaffirm and touch base with parents. Um, it's it's always good to to um, check in. And what we heard from uh, the community was that, um, and what the government heard from the community was that many of those changes were accepted. And um, uh, and that's good news. Well, it's uh, only a couple of weeks until the beginning of the school year, and clearly uh, it's going to be a, a, an exciting time, I think, for students and for the teachers, of course. And uh, there's going to be, have to be an adjustment period here, and I'm sure we'll have further conversations about that in the weeks ahead. Uh, Alex, uh, enjoy the rest of your summer, such as it is, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Bye now. Alex Johnson, the uh, chair of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canadian Armed Forces are facing calls right now to drop what experts say is a reactive approach to racism and hate in the ranks and instead launch a concentrated proactive effort to root out extremist beliefs. This is all because of a recent case here uh, where the RCMP and military investigators are looking into a reservist in Manitoba by the name of uh, Patrick Matthews who uh, joined the reserves uh, who is said to be uh, distributing hate literature and a member of a, a right-wing extremist group. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Bernie Farber, chair of the uh, Can- Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, Bernie, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Always always a pleasure, Bill. You know, if, let me connect the dots here. You and I had this discussion last week about the problem with the, the, the former now Hamilton employee, Mark Lemire, uh, mm-hmm. who's been since uh, he's gone now. Do we have a problem here with the hiring uh, procedures in this country? I mean, uh, the, uh, there are still questions to be asked about how that happened, and now we've got this going on, and, and now we're starting to hear from military experts, Bertie, that, that this individual may not be the only one. There's some concern about some of the other people in the ranks. So I, I think it's important to understand that this is not new, this issue with, with the military, um, and it's not new with hiring in, in general. Nobody has really uh, looked for, focused on whether or not people are white supremacists or neo-Nazis, and, and, and maybe that's something that we have to think about. But for us, as Canadians in general, the most important thing that we have to keep you know, really laser-eyed on is the military. I mean, first of all, the Canadian military are heroes, as far as I'm concerned. I mm-hmm. mean, they're their integrity, their heroism, um, their dignity as, as, a, as a fighting force is legendary. And, you know, like in any large organization, there will always be some bad apples, but this goes further than bad apples. And the problem is that only three months ago, the Canadian military intelligence uh, actually released a report the report was actually released in November 2018, but we were able to get it thanks to people like Stu Bell and, and, and others who, who keep an eye on this through a freedom of information. And we discovered that, in fact, uh, between 2013 and 2018, the military tell us that there were over 50 identified members of neo-Nazi and white supremacist organizations within the Canadian military. Well, that, that's frightening in and of itself, and so the question is, what was done? And the answer is nothing. Uh, the, the military's response was it makes up 0.03% of the entire military, so it's not an issue. For me, one of these people being trained by the Canadian military on you know, how to make bombs, how to fire rifles, etc., etc., is a problem. And we've seen this. This is not new for us. We've seen it uh, in the United States when, uh, uh, when uh, McVeigh, Ted McVeigh, uh, t- sorry, Timothy McVeigh, yep. uh, a, a neo-Nazi white supremacist I- I- ideologue, 
planted a bomb at the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City, and, and uh, what, 260 people were murdered. That took one person to do that. So the very fact that the military at that point was already playing it down, the media didn't seem to be too interested. Could you imagine, Bill, if that same report had said there were 50 members of ISIS being trained in the Canadian military, we would have a national nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. And so along comes a report last week, uh, a really very awesome uh, reporter with the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, Ryan Thorpe, uh, infiltrated the base, this group uh, in, uh, in Winnipeg, a, a violent, ultra-violent neo-Nazi organization, and exposed it, exposed the individual involved. Guess what? He's a member of the Canadian military. Not only that, he's a master corporal and a combat engineer. So what are combat engineers trained in? They're trained in how to make bombs, how to take out bridges. That's what they do. I know, and, and the spokesperson that was from the military that was addressing this the other day, I, I guess was trying to reassure us and said, yeah, but he doesn't have any access to explosive materials. No, but he's been trained how to do it. Exactly. He, he can build she one. Actually, she went a little bit further and said he really only has basic elementary knowledge of making bombs at this point. Do you or I have basic elementary knowledge in making bombs? I mean, the whole thing is absurd. And, and I think what happened finally is, is the media, thank goodness, sort of uh, got onto this. And for the last week, it has, been, it's, it has been a front page story to a point where now, today, or the last couple of days, people are asking the right questions. What is the military doing about this? What are they doing about the 50 people? Actually, now they, 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 the claim is, of course, that you know, a number of them have dropped off, so really there are only 30 left. All right, so what, what about the 30? What's happened to them? Have they, put, have they been taken off of active duty? Are they still around? Are they going to be somehow disciplined? Are they going to be taken away from the Canadian military? We don't know any of this. There's been no transparency. And then this next question is, okay, let's say we get this resolved. How do we know it's not going to happen again? And, Bill, here's the kicker. This is not the first time in Canada. You will remember back in the 90s we had the Canadian Airborne Division, a yep. fabled organization, and unfortunately, within, within the uh, Airborne were a number of, of white supremacists and bigots and neo-Nazis. Uh, they were deployed to Somalia to do peacekeeping. They kidnapped a young 16-year-old Somalian teenager uh, and beat him to death. That led to the, I guess, famous uh, Somali inquiry, which amongst the 100 and some odd recommendations was that the military has to screen their people better, they have to engage in anti-racism uh, training, they have to be able to spot hate when they see it amongst the troops. None of those recommendations, it seems, were ever put into practice. Well, and I know that, that, that we all remember that, of course, and the, 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 the disgust and, the, and the, uh, the dishonor, of course, that, that came upon the Airborne Division as a result of this. Uh, but... <laughs> You've got, I guess, there's a culture that we have to talk about here, you know, when you get into the military. And I've known quite a few members of the military, and I'm not, for a minute now, going to try to paint everybody with the same brush here. But, uh, you know, what they're encouraging here is, first of all, there should be a better screening process. Secondly, there should be uh, the ability and, and the, the, for people that are seeing this, you know, with somebody who's in the military with them to, to come forward. I don't think that's going to happen, Bernie. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that it will. I mean, it's, it's the only way that we can really get this kind of under control. And, and the minister has now come forward and said, no, I've now appointed the ombudsman who's going to look into racism in the ranks. This, okay, this will be now report number two. Uh, you know, it was done 20 years ago, now it's going to be done again. 
I think we've had enough of reports and enough of investigations. Uh, now we need some real concrete action. And that's really what worries me more. And by the way, yes, the buck stops with the defense minister. But, you know, really, we, we need to hear from our leaders. I mean, we haven't heard a word from the, uh, from, you know, from Mr. Scheer. We haven't heard a word from uh, Jagmeet Singh. We haven't heard a word from Elizabeth May. These are political party leaders who have said nothing about white supremacists in the military. And it's time that everybody have a position stated clearly so that we understand that going forward, things might begin to happen. And, uh, you know, I mean, you paint a dark picture, Bill, and I, I understand it. And, uh, you know, I, I guess given the years I've been in this, I should be a little bit more pessimistic. I always try and look for the positives here. You know, when I was walking home yesterday from an interview I was doing downtown, at the St. Saint, Saint James Church there was a small museum dedicated to the 48 Highlanders, just opened that day. It was a message to me. I went in, I took a look, and it reminded me, and it was an important reminder of, of what the Canadian military really stood for. They stood against fascism. They fought the Nazis. Uh, they rescued people. This, was, this is a real heroism of the Canadian military, and to be saddled with these individuals, these white supremacists and these hate mongers, it, 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 it's a stain on our entire country, and I'm shocked and really I'm quite surprised that no one seems to, at least until now, begin to take this seriously. Well, I guess one of the questions we need to ask here, Bernie, is uh, is this behavior tolerated within the military? Are they just turning their back? Uh, because, it's, it's uh, like you say, it may not be rampant, but it only takes one. Well, remember this, Bill, you know, going back to the Somali affair, uh, one of the um, sergeant majors who was in charge of the Canadian Airborne, which was, by the way, disbanded after the, after the inquiry, but he was, he was questioned by a counsel for Canadian Jewish Congress at the time, Keith Landy, who, who was able to get out of him that, yes, a couple of members of the, of the Airborne had swastika tattoos on their chest or arms. And he was asked, doesn't that signify anything to you? And he said, no, they were doing their jobs. Has that attitude changed from 1992 to 2019? Well, one would have hoped so, especially in light of the last two years, where these same kinds of people with these same ideations have walked into churches and mosques and synagogues and, and even on the streets and murdered innocent Canadians and Americans. And yet, we don't have a lot of indication that attitudes have changed within the military. But there is a process. I mean, we've had intense discussions here with Hamilton Police Services over the years, uh, and, and they have a, a, a process, and a screening process, and, and an education process uh, to educate officers uh, into you know, a number of different things, anti-racism, uh, anti-hate yep. groups. Uh, I participate uh, in them. You know, we've gone to York Region Police, uh, another one of the very good police services out there that yeah. actually uh, you know, uh, sponsor these kinds of training uh, modules. Very, very important. The police do it right across the country, and yet do our military... I'm not saying that they don't, Bill. Um, I just know that they haven't been in touch with people like myself and others who have this expertise and have been doing this for, what, 30 years. So if they're getting it, they're obviously not getting it well. Um, and if they're not getting it well, this is exactly the kind of thing that happens. I mean, how ironic is it that it took a reporter to infiltrate a group to bring this to, you know, to public's attention? Uh, and the military literally knew nothing about it. It's also bothersome, by the way, that now that this has been exposed and now that they've actually raided this individual's house and they found some of these materials, uh, they haven't done anything. Not yet, uh, not to the best of our knowledge. And, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, we know that counting this individual, there are 33 
members of white supremacist groups in the Canadian military. By the Canadian military's own admission, not anything I'm telling you, their own admission in their own report. But what we don't know is what is being done about it. I mean, this is a clear and present danger. A, that they're in there. And by the way, listen to some of the groups that are, that are in the Canadian military. Adam Waffen, the base that this guy belongs to from Winnipeg, is an offshoot of Adam Waffen. Both of them are domestic terrorist organizations bent on violence and murder by their, by their own credo to begin a racial holy war. We have Canadian soldiers who belong to these groups right inside the Canadian military. Uh, Hammerskins, another violent skinhead group, members of uh, Hammerskins, are in the Canadian military. Proud Boys, Soldiers of Odin, those are the groups named specifically by the Canadian military and at the same time saying, but there's so few of them, we need not worry about it. That's the attitude. Underplay, no transparency, and we're left thinking, what's next? Well, as you mentioned, it's got to come from the top, and I, I was somewhat disappointed in uh, Harjit Sajjan's uh, response, too. He's the defense minister and a veteran, a, re- a decorated veteran. Uh, he just says, I've got confidence in the mil- military's ability to screen recruits and deal with cases as they arise. Yeah. Uh, well, clearly, it's not working. I mean, it, you, it, you, and the one, the number you just mentioned there, those are the identified ones. You don't know that there aren't correct. others, and we've got to assume that there probably are. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, you, you could even go as far as double it and even more, more than that, but those, you're right. Those are the ones that have been identified. Um, the ones that are in there are actually pretty good at hiding their affiliations. Um, so, uh, you know, and by the way, they weren't even looking for these 30 people. The, the, the criminal investigation group that was doing an investigation was investigating something completely different, and they discovered it. So imagine if they actually did a, a full-on investigation but again, right now, I mean, I, I heard what the defense minister said. Uh, you know, he's also, by the way, a former police officer, a decorated police officer. I mean, he more than others has to know what the danger point is here. Uh, and here in this country, the biggest fear that we have in terms of an of, of a outright threat to lives of Canadians is the extreme right. They're the ones that have killed people on our streets and in our churches and synagogues. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't be worried about ISIS members and, and those kinds of extremists. Of course we should be. But the ones front and center now that have taken Canadian lives are, are, are coming from those that are being trained in the Canadian military. So, you know, w- this is something we have to keep on top of because if, if, if we don't, you know, who else is going to talk about it in the long run? And I, I do trust that, that the defense minister gets it. Um, I, I hope he gets it enough to understand that he has to be a little op- more open with Canadians so that we end up having at least a sense of comfort, not just words that, yeah, we're, you know, we, 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 tr- we trust the military. As you say, they didn't get it right yet. What's being done with these 30 individuals? Are they still on duty? I repeat these questions over and over again, and we still have answers to receive. Well, to go back to the airborne uh, shame uh, that, that occurred, of course, after that death, uh, and as you mentioned, when some of these people were identified as, as extremist members then, uh, the response by the, the military at that time was, yeah, but they're good soldiers. I mean, in other words, yeah. what they're doing is wrong, ethically wrong, and they shouldn't be doing this, but, but if, if they're a good soldier, they get a pass? I'm hoping that attitude has changed. Well, at, at, at this stage, um, unless they really didn't know and there was nobody that knew i mean i I mean we have to hold obviously those on top responsible for ensuring that these people get weeded out however 
I would say the same about the rank and file within the military. They're the ones that you know work shoulder to shoulder with their with their with their fellow soldiers. They would would be the ones to know. And if they do know, they have to get over this you know culture of not reporting their their fellow soldiers. This is a dangerous time. And if if the you know if, if soldiers see something like what, what happened in Winnipeg or any any of the other matters dealing with potential white supremacists within their ranks, they have to report it, and and it has to go from there. And I'm not even sure that's happening because I I don't think there is a culture of that in the Canadian military, not yet anyway. Well, and that's the point I was making earlier that I mean I just you know, I don't think they're ever going to turn on somebody uh, because of the the ramifications that they may think that they're going to endure as a result of this. But it's it's got to happen at some stage. I mean, and that has to be part of the ongoing training. Oh, ab- absolutely. And as I say, anybody who's allowed to carry a gun uh, and and those who who are charged with you know protecting the nation and protecting uh, Canadian citizens, we have to have faith and trust in them. And today, that's been shaken a little bit, uh, maybe more than a little bit. Um, <clears throat> it's it's not that long ago that Alexandre Bissonnette walked into a Quebec mosque uh, and murdered six peaceful Canadian Muslims at prayer. It's not that long ago that uh, uh, um, and, Andrew Manassian or Alex Manassian, sorry. Uh, rented a, uh, a car, a little small truck, and ran over uh, dozens of people, killing 10 in, in downtown Toronto. I mean, these are people with white supremacist ideation. Could these very same people be in the Canadian military? Well, the military themselves say yes, and that's bad. That's, I, I can't think of anything worse. There's got to be, we're just about out of time here, there, there's got to be more reaction from, from the minister and from the government. Uh, I, the military will do. I mean, if, they, if the minister says jump and the minister says we're going to do it this way from now on in, that's yep. where it starts. Yeah, well, absolutely. And by the way, I, I, I think that they're studying this now. I think that they, they, they are kind of seized with it. But I, again, I come back to this point that they have to be open with Canadians. Okay, we, we know about these people. We know that they're there. So what are you going to do with them? Please tell us that you've taken action. Uh, we need to know that because right now they have been mum on the ones that they've already found. Bernie, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking thanks, with you again today. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bernie Farber, of course, uh, uh, the uh, chair of the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about Canada-China relations, which has been an ongoing problem for this government over the last couple of months and probably dating back, obviously, to the arrest of... Uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou, of course, the CFO of, uh, of Huawei at uh, Vancouver Airport some months ago. Now, that hearing, by the way, is uh, uh, imminent. It's going to be happening in just a little while. But, of course, uh, the Chinese government lashed out uh, at Trudeau about that. They also lashed out about uh, uh, his comments just the other day about Hong Kong and basically told him to mind his own business. But yesterday, the prime minister stuck to his guns. Our government has also been working tirelessly to secure the safe release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. This has included generated, generating widespread support from the international community. Canadians expect us to be unwavering in our commitment to human rights while upholding the paramount importance of international law. As a global community, we must recognize that China is a growing power and increasingly assertive towards its place in the international order. But, nay, but make no mistake, we will always defend Canadians and Canadian interests. Well, uh, China's 
kind of just saying, yeah, big deal. Uh, there's, but there's an undercurrent of, of animosity that seems to be developing here. Uh, this could be a factor in the election. Obviously, international affairs are a very big deal. Uh, and, and obviously trying to fix something between Canada and China. They, don't forget, before all this started, uh, there was some talk about an international trade deal between the two countries. That's pretty much off the table now. And, of course, we've got the uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State in Ottawa right now, talking to the Prime Minister. Joining us to talk about the implications of what's going to be happening here is uh, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Uh, great to have you back on the show today, Elliot. Thanks. Oh, good morning, Bill. This is a very complex situation. Uh, China just doesn't seem to like the Trudeau government very much anymore. Uh, there was some talk, as we mentioned just a second ago, but actually getting together and talking about some sort of a trade deal. And then Huawei happened, and, and that really seems to have uh, messed everything up. Yes, there's clearly a before and an after <laughs> in this regard, and the after has become increasingly pointed, increasingly shrill, on the on the Chinese side about what Canada is up to in the course that you wrap into that Hong Kong and it becomes a very complicated issue but it's very very simple from China's view we've got one of their champions under arrest and nothing's going to improve between our two countries until she is out of our country what are the chances of that happening there, there, Elliot there's got to be some people in the, in Ottawa right now that say I wish we'd never agreed to do this <laughs> Well, that's uh, you ask about the election coming up. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see if anybody at any party at any level says Canada should not have done this arrest in the first place. It's gotten us into a terrible situation, and everything would be great between us and this totalitarian state if it hadn't been for that. Uh, that would be a very tricky argument to make, but it's one that's easy to make if you're, you know, a farmer in the, in the prairies whose, whose crops have been hit and you know, all the retaliatory measures. But the only answer is, uh, right now, that the Meng Wanzhou case has to be resolved. This is from the Chinese side, their perspective. And until that happens, uh, nothing good is going to happen between Hong Kong and China. I'm sorry, between Can Canada and China. But in uh, uh, a hypothetical situation, if they put her on a plane today and said, forget about it, but pretend this never happened, are we friends again with China? It'll be a while before uh, a status quo anti comes back. Let's talk about the option of under what circumstances could that, that scenario happen. Uh, right now, Canada's saying it can't happen uh, until such time as the entire court process uh, works its way through. But there are two scenarios where, in fact, she could be put on a plane and gone. Mike Pompeo, when he's here in town, and remember... Uh, uh, Trudeau is going to see Trump, uh, talk to Trump just a few days ago, and they yes, both talked about China and Hong Kong. But if the U.S. says, never mind, we don't want her, she's, we're withdrawing our extradition request, then, of course, Canada has no reason to hold her because we're only doing that because of a, a particular legal obligation as Canada sees it under the extra, extradition request. So one scenario is the U.S. said, well, Really, we've changed our mind on this because we're, it's all wrapped up in a trade deal with China, and we would like this out of the way for whatever reason. So that's the other is she wins her case. Uh, it's now she she's got high-powered lawyers, I'm sure, and a lot of them, and they're making the case that she should never have been arrested in the first place, and that it was all uh, procedurally procedurally incorrect. And a Canadian court could say, right, proper. We don't care about the substance of it. Procedures weren't followed. Uh, we're dismissing the case. So under two scenarios, she, she could, in fact, be put on a plane and, and leave. Would that then take us back? That was your question. Uh, so that's, 
everything's the same as it was before? And I think the answer to that is no. Uh, for, again, two dimensions that have come out. Bill, the view of China has changed radically inside Canada and around the world, in part because of the way that China has behaved toward Canada. Mm-hmm. The idea that this was going to be a peaceable rise, that this was a reasonable uh, contender for world leadership, because after all, they, they say they want to uphold the world uh, liberal international trading regime, and uh, they're really good cooperators. I think the reputational hit on China is very uh, deep. The, a year ago uh, at the G7 compared to this year at the G7, the view of China globally has changed. So that's one side of it. And the second change is that Huawei has now come into focus, not just China. China's come into focus in a different way, from vaguely, oh, positive, got some doubts, but, you know, they're okay, to negative. And now what about Huawei itself? Now, as you know, uh, the security concerns about Huawei have come clearly into focus in a way it didn't before, and uh, we're into the entire um, G5 and the Five Eyes and all those issues. And and the other element to that, too, as we've discovered, well, you need, just need to watch a television show for an hour or so and you start seeing all the Huawei commercials. Canada is up to their knees in Huawei already, so to actually sever that is only going to make uh, the tenuous situation between these two countries even worse. Yes, Huawei is feeling the hit, by the way. Uh, their cell phone, uh, they, they were on their way to being the number one provider of cell phones around the world. Yeah. Now there's issues because of Android and their use. So they are paying uh, a cost. And uh, there was just a story on their, their, uh, the father of Ming Wanzhou, the founder of Huawei, saying this is a do-or-die moment for Huawei. So um, the the whole issue of who's going to dominate the future of technology is also on the table between China and the U.S. in their bilateral dispute. Huawei was a key part of that. And, yes, uh, I live in Ottawa, as you know, and we have a building. We have an entire high-tech park. And in the middle of that park, there's a building, a Huawei building. And uh, we've been seeing the numbers now across the country of how many people Huawei employs, their relationship in funding research, their connections to universities, to academics, uh, to engineering uh, centers. And uh, there was a very interesting interview you can watch if you dig it out. Canada has a reporter there, The Globe does, and he had a long, just casual interview with uh, the, the head of Huawei who said, we like Canada. And we want to really invest much more in Canada. He said, we want to make Canada the global center for our research and development. The subtext is, if only this you know, unpleasantness yeah. uh, could be removed. Well, and as you say, that may work itself out as in a matter of time anyway. But in the meantime, you've got to deal with what we've got. And we know that when uh, the, the Prime Minister met with uh, Trump a, a while back, uh, Trump made a promise to him that he was going to bring this up with the Chinese about the detained Canadians there. Says he did, uh, although we don't really have any proof of that. I'm sure that uh, the Prime Minister's discussion with uh, with Secretary of State Pompeo, they're going to talk about that as well. But is <laughs> Is, is the United States a, a willing ally in this in this battle right now? Because, as you mentioned, they've got their own interest in China that may necessar- may not necessarily jive with what Canada wants. Yes, we are collateral damage in all kinds of ways. We're collateral damage, most certainly, 
in the bilateral issue of sanctions on Iran, which China, through <laughs> Huawei, is, is accused of violating. That's the basis of this uh, extradition request. It's, it's, it all has to do with U.S.-Iranian policy, with which we may or may not be in full accord. But beyond that, uh, we are doing what we can under the circumstances, but this is clearly a battle between the big powers, and we have to uh, hope for the best in how that one turns out. And, and we're not sure what that's going to be. As no. And, of course, as you mentioned, the uh, the G7 is coming up in France uh, in just a day or two, uh, and you got to figure that the, the Prime Minister and, and Trump will have some sort of a discussion about that. But I, I don't see a breakthrough, Ali, and I just don't see it in the cards right now because, uh, you know, in other words, I, I don't think Xi is going to sit down there and listen to Trump and say, oh, is that, oh yeah, we'll do that for you. Uh, they've got their own problems right now in their trade war, and uh, Canada is really on the outside looking in when it comes to that, to, to the potential for those sorts of partnerships. Yes, we can natter loudly. <laughs> yeah. We can be sure that the issue, as it has been, uh, is, is kept on the international burner, that it's an internationalized, uh, this has been a strategy for Canada and fairly successful, internationalizing this so it's not simply a China Canada issue, it's an international issue, and that's why Christian Freeland is now laser-focused in Chinese uh, hostility. Uh, they focused on her because of her recent statement with the uh, EU's uh, spokesperson, her counterpart for the EU, where they did a joint statement on the issue of Hong Kong, and only Freeland has been by name and by her photos focused on uh, by the Chinese media. So the, uh, the, we want to internationalize this. The Chinese want to keep it bilateral, and they want to get, they have a lot of leverage when, they help, when it's China dealing with Canada, and Canada only can attempt to gain leverage by having allies, uh, and we're fairly successful, but nevertheless, we are basically a, a dependent variable in all of this equation. There's an element to this, too. I know we're kind of moving into economics, but I mean, these things are so intertwined these days. Oh, yes. Uh, yesterday on the lawn there, Trump was bragging about the fact that they're going to win this trade war. He always thinks they're going to win trade wars. Uh, and he thinks he's really punishing China by doing what he's doing here. And he says, you know, we hold all the cards. Uh, it, is he not aware of the fact that uh, the, the huge debt that the United States, the, China owns most of that debt. I mean, if, if they decided to call in some of their markers, they could do serious damage to the U.S. economy. Yeah, you know, Japan is just past them, by the way, the purchaser of that debt. No, I, I, we're dealing in economics, and I, my only advice on economics is don't listen to a political scientist when you're talking <laughs> about the stock market. But the, um, no, we're into this bizarre situation. First of all, China is now hurting because of the dispute with the U.S. and because of Hong Kong. There, there's a lot of concern about... Uh, international supply routes and the, the connecting tissue of the global economy and Hong Kong is now being bypassed China is now being bypassed because of the these two things the China US and the China Hong Kong situation alternative international supply routes are now being created uh, Taiwan by the way we should always keep in mind is a factor in all this it's a democracy and it's a basically a close friend of Canada and are they winning or losing in all of this? And is there a threat to to, China, to Taiwan? But uh, what we have in terms of economics is a shifting. The global picture here is that the U.S. woke up to say that China is an emerging power, and 
they want to, uh, China want, as I said, and they've laid it out in, in very clearly in some steps, we're going to dominate the IT future. They are also saying by 2050 they're going to set the international norms of how the, the operating system of the world and, uh, globally in economics. So uh, we are seeing a clash of titans over the future of the global economy and, and in particularly the high-tech sector and how all that works out has a lot to do with then how it works out with our particular situation with China and Canada. The uh, G7 meeting that's going to be happening this weekend, uh, obviously they're going to be talking about Hong Kong, uh, maybe even you know issue a statement about that. Uh, is that going to add to the pressure to the Chinese government? I mean, basically the world is watching right now, and, and you know they're, they're, they could do an awful lot of things that would actually throw everybody into a tizzy here, but at the same time they just seem to be sitting back, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're exerting an awful lot of pressure on the Hong Kong government right now to, to make this thing go away. But uh, they, I got the t- feeling that they're very, very tempted right now to intercede themselves they meaning China yes um, well back to your question about you know they own American debt you know the old saying if you owe the bank a thousand dollars and can't pay it back you're in trouble but if you owe the bank a million dollars and can't pay it back the bank's in trouble so in the bizarre world of economics which I don't pretend to understand China has a vested interest in American economics mm-hmm. <laughs> not failure so uh, I, that's why I prefer to talk about politics the um, uh, the two off ramps that I, I can see right now, and it's these are not um, these are not what I, I see as the most likely. But the first one we've talked about in terms of the bilateral relationship is the release of Ming Wanzhou through judicial means or through bilateral agreement between China and the U.S. The second is China may now see it to be this is a possibility to their advantage to actually get a dialogue going in Hong Kong to defuse the situation there so it's off the front pages and it becomes a back burner issue instead of a front burner issue for the variety of reasons that uh, they do not want really to have to use force. They do not want another Tiananmen and they really need a way out. And there is a way out. They can now, again, this is all speculative, but they could... um, they could now go to Kerry Lamb and say, it's time to actually get underway on dialogue. And that dialogue has some fairly clear dimensions. The first one is the protesters have five demands. One of them is to get rid of her. Yeah, <laughs> so, which, which they could do easily. Yes. So if China wants to, a way out, if they want a way out, and they have excellent reason to not want before their uh, 70th anniversary <laughs> celebrations of the founding of the country in October, October 1st, they, they don't... They really don't want a bloodbath there. They don't want to, to create a situation where Hong Kong truly is damaged as an economic window, two-way window uh, to the world for China. Well, we're going to have to jump out here right now because yeah. we, we, this is our exit ramp. We just about out of time. Sure. Uh, let's talk next week after the G7 sure. meeting. Well, I'm sure there's going to be lots of th- things there. But the, that's the way out is if China wants a way out. Thanks so much, Elliot. Great Take talking care. with you again. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.